On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about cannabis because apparently a whole lot of Canadians are using a whole lot more cannabis to get through COVID-19. Should we be concerned or is it a meh, nothing? We'll talk about that. We're also chatting about China because uh, Jack Ma, who you've probably heard the name before, the richest man in China, we're told, criticized the Chinese government a couple months ago. And guess what happened? He disappeared. Uh-huh. Again, something we should be concerned about, or is he just living on a tropical island somewhere out of the reach of cell phones? Well, we'll talk about that. And Don Robertson joins us as he does once a week all the time to talk about, well, we'll talk World Juniors, we'll talk Joe Thornton, maybe even a little bit of Blue Jays. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't need to be telling you that it's been a tough year. There's been a number of tough months that it's impacted different people different ways, and some people are feeling overwhelmed. Well, there is a new study out, um, a Canadian study, the numbers have just been released, that say almost 30% of Canadians, now keep that number in mind, almost 30% of Canadians, the numbers say, say their cannabis usage has increased since the COVID-19 pandemic began. This is a poll by the Mental Health Research Canada. That seems like a lot of people. Let me bring in Dr. James McKillop. He is the Peter Boris Chair in Addictions Research. He is a director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research. He is the co-director of the Michael G. DeGroot Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at McMaster. Love having him on when we get him. Dr. McKillop, thanks for doing this today. Great to talk to you, Scott. Happy New Year. Um, Listen, there are so many parts of this, these numbers that jumped out at me. Uh, But let's start at the obvious one to me anyway. And that is if 30% of Canadians say their cannabis use has increased, that means by definition, that means more than 30% of Canadians are using this stuff, which strikes me as an, as an exceptionally high number, particularly when you eliminate, I would think the people that, you know, the very young and perhaps the very old who presumably don't use it. 30% at least of Canadians using cannabis regularly seems very like a lot. I, I agree, Scott. I have to say, I haven't been able to personally review these findings But that seems like a suspiciously high number just because of the overall population prevalence rates that we know of from the past. So I I presume they mean among cannabis users, but I don't think that that's coming across very clearly because you're exactly right. In the general population, if 30 percent of Canadians reported an increase, that would already presume a very, very large number had just recently started using since most of the time, the prevalence rate is generally around, uh, it's cl- between one in uh, 10 and one in six on an annual basis. Okay, so we're talking about, if this is correct, as we're reading the numbers here, that it's first of all gone up by 300% since COVID started, but more than 300, because that's just the numbers that have gone up since they've started, since this arrived. That's right. So I, I think that perhaps um, the, the, the data aren't being presented quite accurately because that can't be a representative number for all of Canada. All right. Even if we go with that, even if we say, let's assume that the wording was awkward and that it's 30% of users are showing an increase in their use. uh, That still seems like an awful lot of people who are turning to cannabis to deal with whatever an awful lot more. Is that something that you look at and say, well, you know, it's legal, so no big deal. Or is that something you look at and you say, that sounds like it might be a little concerning. No, it is something that could be a worrying trend. And from what I can tell, these findings do represent a cross-sectional study, so there are reasons to be cautious. Also, presuming, again, that it's just among cannabis users. But I do think that we are hearing a lot of anecdotes about people who who are using noticeably more cannabis during the pandemic, especially in conjunction with a lot of stress, Mm. Uh, other psychiatric symptoms like anxiety and depression. So I do think that it may be a reason for concern. Well, this poll, uh, since you bring it up, this poll found anxiety has quadrupled among Canadians and depression has doubled since COVID arrived. And the the assumption, I guess, or the the connection is that this the poll seems to suggest many people are then using cannabis to deal with these mental health issues. Um I don't think anyone's going to say that's the best way probably to deal with these things, but there's another part and there seems to be some 
research and tell me that I'm wrong or not wrong on this one, but there seems to be some research that suggests cannabis can in some people exacerbate depression or anxiety. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So one of the things that I, I do find somewhat troubling and worrying about these findings is that if the increases are among people who are experiencing higher levels of depression or anxiety, or perhaps did before the pandemic also, if basically they're using cannabis to self-medicate, that's not a, uh, a good sign. We, we know that in general, problematical cannabis use tends to be associated with greater psychiatric problems, and, and it's most problematic among people who use it to cope. Uh, and the, the truth of the matter is, although there's a lot of speculation about cannabis as a novel antidepressant, cannabis as a novel anxiolytic or anxiety-reducing drug, it, it, there is not evidence to support that. In fact, the uh, Canadian Psychiatric Association recently just put out a position statement urging caution around that. And we do know that from some longitudinal studies, cannabis actually makes those problems get worse over time. So it, it may make people feel better transiently in the present, but the future uh, and down the road is, is not as uh, hopeful with chronic use. You use the term problematic usage. What do you mean by that? What's problematic use? Well, unfortunately, a lot of people think that cannabis is not addictive and that people can't develop an addiction to cannabis. But the reality is uh, that's not the case. Uh, some people do develop cannabis addiction. Technically, it's called cannabis use disorder. It's a psychiatric diagnosis. It's no different from alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, addiction to alcohol or opioids. And I think that one of the things that I would be very interested to see in these new data is to what extent the increases represent a slight uptick, meaning people might be using cannabis a day or two more a week or maybe a, another gram or two a week versus people who are using much more heavily and people who would now meet the criteria for cannabis addiction and are actually developing what we would consider a clinically significant problem. And, and that would be a very worrying trend indeed. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. McKeel, just before the break, and this is one of the things that I always find fascinating when you're on here, and we love having you on because there's always something that I think either I learn or hopefully everyone else learns or catches people with something they didn't hear before. There is a the widely, widely, widely held view that you sort of took a little bit of a shot at before the break that cannabis cannot be addictive. And that's, I mean, there are, you hear that all the time, that this is not an addictive drug. You said before it is addictive, maybe not in the term of heroin or something, but it is a psychological or a, you know, how did you describe it? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a condition. How do you it's, describe it? It's a it medical as, condition. It is there you go. A, uh, a medical condition, just like any other psychiatric condition. And I think, unfortunately, it's one of the biggest myths that's held out there about cannabis the good news is it, it only affects a small minority of people who use cannabis, um, probably around the same proportion or slightly lower the, uh, as uh, people who drink alcohol. So by no means do most people who drink alcohol have alcohol use disorder or alcoholism colloquially. And in the same way, the vast majority of people who use cannabis do not have cannabis use disorder. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect some people and cause a lot of distress and harm. And I think that that's one of the things to be most concerned about with some of these changing trends during COVID. Well, and what, and you know, one of the things that's often said is, well, it's better than drinking because you can become an alcoholic. And, and, and that, again, that's an argument that's often used about why cannabis is so much better in some people's minds, because it's not something that has lingering effects like that. But if you're correct, and I believe you are, um, if people are suddenly using a lot more now to deal with the anxiety or depression or stress or whatever else, would it follow that when this is all over, if it is addictive, that we will have a lot more people who won't be necessarily returning to their previous levels when this is all done? I think that's a great question, Scott. I think that there are a couple of possibilities. One is that there might be a transient uptick during the pandemic um, and it, it may follow other trends that we've heard about also. People eating less healthy food, gaining weight. We've heard about the COVID-19, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that it may be that a lot of folks are, uh, you know, engaging in, you know, changes in health behavior because of social distancing and lack of access, for example, to the gym. 
that uh, ultimately will return back to normal after the pandemic is over, or at least uh, is controlled more effectively. On the other hand, it is possible that some people will develop, unfortunately, habits that stick and persist beyond the pandemic. And I think that that's one of the things that is most critical in terms of a lot of the the, the public health strategies is how do we um, reduce the risk of impact becoming long-term or permanent. And obviously, from a health standpoint, that, that might pertain to things like uh, lung health and physical health in general. But when it comes to mental health, we want to make sure that, that whatever changes in behavior are happening during the pandemic don't then become permanent or troubling patterns that, that actually meet criteria for, in this case, for example, cannabis use disorder. My big concern when I read this story is, and you have been on this show before talking about the fact that I think most doctors, most researchers have said that those under 25, give or take, um, it can do permanent damage if you're a heavy user. And so, you know what, if you're 45 or 50 and you want to do this, I mean, you know, that's your choice, whatever. But I'm looking at this and if we're seeing numbers going way up, some of those are going to be younger people. Um doing damage to themselves, potentially long-term brain damage to themselves. If again, if the researchers are correct, that you can do permanent, have a permanent effect on yourself at those young ages. It's certainly a concern. Now, I think that the important thing to consider is always the dose makes the poison, so to speak. That is the amount that's being consumed really drives the risk of harms. And so if we're talking about a relatively low-level or infrequent use that's ratcheting up just a bit, then the the risk of harm is probably relatively low. On the other hand, um, if we're talking about very dramatic increases, and that goes for drinking also, um, then I think the risk of harm gets much more significant. Although the the, the good news on the uh, front of, of cognitive impact is that in a lot of my own research, what we see is that after people reduce or stop using, uh, a lot of the uh, negative cognitive consequences actually go away. So um, although there is some impairment, it doesn't seem to be necessarily permanent. Um, and, and I think that that is, a, is, is good news when it comes to understanding the risks associated with cannabis. So many other things I want to ask about. Sadly, we are out of time, but I mean, one, one of the other things, and we'll get to this another day, is, it, you know, the concern that a number of experts have raised that if people are self-medicating, maybe those who really need help, mental health, are not getting the real help they need because they're masking it with this. Uh, again, that's that's a discussion that, uh, that we're going to have to have another day, but I always appreciate the time. Dr. James McKill, thanks for doing this today. Great to talk to you, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a bit of a mystery story right now, a real life mystery. Probably at one time or another, you have heard the name Jack Ma. Uh, he's a Chinese guy, one of the world's richest men, um, holdings in all kinds of tech and fashion and other companies, uh, apparently worth close to $70 billion. Richest man in China, we're told. A lot of money. Well, a couple of months back, um, be, I guess emboldened by his riches and the fact that he tends to be outspoken and loves the spotlight, a couple of months back, he criticized the Chinese government and its banking system, among other things, and then he disappeared. He hasn't been seen for months, and lest anyone think that, oh, well, he's just sort of vanished and taken a break at his Caribbean island somewhere, relaxing out of cell phone reach, well... There are plenty of reasons to think something nefarious has happened here, um, which based on his t- the timing of his vanishing and the criticism and everything else has led many people to say he didn't just disappear. He was disappeared. Um, here's the kind of the scary part. He is far from the only Chinese billionaire, apparently, to suddenly vanish in recent years. The Independent, the newspaper over in England, wrote a piece a couple of years ago under the headline, Chinese billionaires and CEOs keep disappearing in, quote, state-sanctioned abductions. What's going on? Dr. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. He joins us now. Dr. Burton, thanks for your time today. Great to speak with you, Scott. Do you believe that something has happened to Jack Ma, or is he just taking a vacation somewhere? <laughs> I don't think it's a vacation. Uh, you know, uh, the thing is that 
the Chinese Communist Party is is cracking down on on alternative power centers, and Mr. Ma, you know, who runs Alibaba, which is, I think, even bigger than Amazon, um, has been moving into financial areas to try and uh, assist business that are not getting the advantages from the Chinese state system, which tends to favor state enterprises. And, uh, you know, I think that his power and influence is posing a threat to the Chinese Communist Party, and therefore they've decided... Um, you know, but he uh, he's moved over the line, and uh, he will be uh, probably subject to some kind of campaign. I mean, the thing about it is that anyone who does business in China is bound to be um, open to accusations of tax evasion and bribery and that kind of thing. You know, you you really couldn't um, survive in that kind of environment without without doing those sorts of things, and so. My guess is that, uh, you know, when he emerges, presumably he's most likely uh, under um, residential surveillance by the Ministry of State Security as they try and figure out what crimes to accuse him of, that um, that he will be uh, subject to a long term of imprisonment. I hope I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, he just, I guess he just sort of sailed too close to the sun. Hmm. He tried his best to accommodate the communists to the extent possible, doing all sorts of publicity for the party and the system, which is, you know, also essential to maintaining your business position. But that clearly wasn't enough to save him. All right. So let's say, and using that line again, that a lot of people have used it, let's say he was disappeared. Um, should this really be any of our concern? It's not our country. It's not our rules. China wants to play that way. Let them play that way. It's their country and they can do what they want. What, what do we say to that? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it, you're looking at a country where they're engaging in genocide against Turkic Muslims and, um, you know, which violates the, the rights of, of um, people in the city of Wuhan who wanted to get the truth out about the, uh, about the nature of the, of the COVID-19 early on. Those, uh, one woman, Jan Zhang, is, has been sentenced to, uh, to a long prison term for doing just that, no, nothing more than going to Wuhan and making some videos and doing some interviews and putting it up on the Internet. Uh, should we be concerned? Yeah, I think we should be concerned because, you, you know, China's foreign policy is an extension of its domestic policy. Um, human rights are something that are the universal entitlement of all humans, regardless of where they live. And uh, China's uh, government is, uh, you know, an autocratic, brutal uh, regime that that um, takes Canadian hostages to try and coerce Canada on um, on geostrategic concerns over, you know, what whether we use Chinese telecommunications in our system or or whatever, uh, and and arbitrarily violates important agricultural export commodity contracts like three billion dollars worth of those little black canola seeds that uh, they just mm. decided they wouldn't take anymore as a means to coerce us over our, our uh, detaining of the Huawei CFO. You know, these, these things cannot be compartmentalized to China alone. I think we have to, I think we do have to try and stand up for the rules-based international order, and that means that we can't stand idly by when people in China are being treated in such a disgraceful way. Jack Mao may be just one person, but, you know... But very high profile. Like very, maybe there is, there may not be another more high profile person there. And it does get me wondering, you've, you mentioned, you know, the two Michaels, uh, we've got this story from the independent with a list of other CEOs and capitalists who have suddenly gone missing. We've got Jack Ma at, 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 is there a point when we as Canadians have to say, what impact should this have on our dealings with that country? I mean, I know we rely on them for economic stuff, but is there a point when we say we just, there's a line we can't cross or is that just too difficult? No, I think that, you know, I think the point is that is our engagement with China of net benefit to Canada. And if they will only um, allow our Canadian corporations access to lucrative business deals with Chinese communist business networks, if we fulfill certain conditions, such as ignoring human rights violations or ignoring Chinese state harassment of people in Canada, the, particularly the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, um, or ignoring Chinese cyber espionage, or, you know, like all of these things, Chinese China wants us to engage them on their terms, 
not on our terms. Um, you know, what, at what point do we say, well, we're we're not going to do that? You know, and if if we crack down on diplomats who are engaged in in harassing and menacing of of persons in Canada of Chinese origin, uh, and if they're going to retaliate by canceling trade contracts or whatever, I, I think we just have to. Uh, I think we just have to accept that. And I mean, there's another aspect to it, which is, you know, Australia and New Zealand, who've been standing up to China with much more backbone than than our government, do about a third of their external trade with China. Canada only does less than 4%. It used to be a little over 4% till they stopped the canola seeds. And so the economic damage to us would not be that great. And for one thing, most of the stuff we send out to China is, is agricultural commodity exports and minerals, all of which have a global market. So if we're not selling to China, we can sell it elsewhere. The stuff's not going to you know, remain. Uh, the wheat will, will still be sold because there's, there's a demand for this commodity. So you know, I think that we should be looking at this in, in, in a very rational way, um, focusing on the Canadian self-interest and not necessarily on the interest of Canadian corporate elements who have um, you know, lucrative deals with China who may be pressuring our government to do a China policy that is not the one that Canadians want us to be doing and which may endanger our sovereignty and security. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Charles, just before the break, you, you, in addition to the questions that you brought, that you were answering about what should our dealings be on a an economic level with China, there's another thing, and you mentioned human rights. We in Canada are very fond at times of pointing our fingers at certain countries, including our own sometimes, every time there is a human rights violation and reacting with rage and throwing paint on our statues of our prime ministers and all these other things and canceling anyone who has deemed to have done anything to violate someone else's human rights. How can we possibly then, if there's anything to this story, how can we have any kind of normal relations and be anywhere near consistent if we're going to go ahead and say, well, this is okay, but that isn't? Yeah, I think that there's a tendency, um, and, and you know, this was a view that was articulated by um, our ambassador in Beijing, Dominic Barton, when he spoke to the Common Special Committee on Canada-China Relations. There's a tendency to believe, well, you know, Chinese culture is like this. They believe in collectivism and respect for authority and they, you know, they, they like patriarchy and that kind of thing. I think that's all nonsense. Um, you know, I, I studied uh, the history of ancient Chinese thought when I was a student in, in China. I had the privilege to be educated in that country, uh, you know, many decades ago. And uh, there's nothing in the Chinese tradition which says that uh, human rights cannot be upheld. In fact, I'd argue that, you know, all the great traditions support the dignity of the individual and fairness and reciprocity and equality. So this line that, oh, we should give China a buy because, you know, that's their, it's their culture that, that, that allows them to, to do this to the Uyghurs or, you know, or, or, to, or to torture people in prison or whatever, you know, that, uh, that just doesn't uh, hold any, any water for me. And, and I, well, it, I mean, if you're going to go there, Again, to be consistent, you would have to say, well, then in some other countries where they will throw gay people off the roof, well, that's their tradition. We got to let that. I mean, like it, it just you're either for human rights or you're not for human rights. It sounds like and, and picking and choosing just seems to be looking for, well, what's going to serve us best as opposed to being consistent. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that point. And I, I think that, you know, it's a sort of woke culture and and uh, the acceptance of of what goes on in the Middle East as being, uh, you know, in terms of discrimination against women or, or uh, you know, or, or harsh punishments as being uh, culturally protected, whereas in our own country we expect people from, you know, centuries before to have upheld the, the current politically correct values. I mean, how many of the people who have statues around uh, our parliament buildings would have been enlightened about the status of of gays and and uh, and lesbians in the context of their time. You know, I don't think I don't think you can hold those people to that kind of that kind of standard in today's world, and it's hypocritical to to expect that of our forebears and then to to tacitly give permission to some cultures where 
where things are going on that are just gross violations of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the principles of human decency. We have uh, we have about a minute left, and this is very complicated, so I'm sorry to squeeze you for the time on this one, but uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, talking again about Jack Ma, um, pointed out last week that Beijing, in its words, was seeking to shrink Ma's empire and potentially take a larger stake in his business. Uh, and they cited Chinese officials and government advisors. He oversaw, his companies oversaw a lot of tech companies that have tentacles that would even reach into North America. Many people will have voluntarily given information into those tech companies. Should it be concerning to Canadians that perhaps the Chinese government would be taking some of these and would have access to that information? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Chinese government, you know, there's no Chinese enterprise that doesn't serve the overall interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that the Chinese Communist Party would like to absorb the kind of value, um, both in terms of economic value and, and uh, technology, that Mr. Ma has generated. And unfortunately, Mr. Ma is likely to be subject to the kind of harsh conditions that we're looking at with Kovrigan's favor today. I, I hope it's not so, but he, he has disappeared for a sufficiently long period of time that I can't help but be very concerned about his fate. Yeah, some of the people who have disappeared have re-emerged uh, mysteriously. Others have not. Who knows? I, I, I do find it hard to believe. And, you know, I, again, we're really short on time. The one group that I look at right now and I think has more power than maybe anyone else at this moment is the International Olympic Committee because the Olympics are going to be there in Beijing in a year from right now. And the last thing Beijing wants is to be humiliated. I, I really believe that that's an organization that could flex its muscles more for something like this. They never will. But you look and you go, there, there are groups that could do something that could perhaps help this situation. I, I just don't know if they ever would. Yeah, I mean, I think that even Chinese communists crave um, self-respect of the global community. And if they're facing a situation where we shun them because of their appalling behavior and don't allow them to celebrate, um, you know, the Olympic spirit, then I think that that will have an impact on them. I, I don't, I, I, I do believe that, that you're right, but... You know, the IOC is a complicated organization, <laughs> one which is yeah. a champion of human rights in the past. We're, we're not exactly talking about two wildly open organizations, let's put it that way. Uh, Dr. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the McDonnell laurie Institute. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Great to speak with you. Good night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What better way than by bringing in I would argue the surefire Dundas Citizen of the Year again in 2021. It was a few years ago he won. It's time for him to get it again. I think 2021 is a good year for that. Post-COVID, everything else. Don Robertson joins us, sir. Future Citizen of the Year again. How are you? Yes, I can't find anybody again. I'm in the running, that's for sure. If if no one else will leave their house. You... That's right. <laughs> I'm the only opportunity they've got. I'm their guy. No, I disagree. I think there is, there's much reason to think that uh, this will happen again. But anyway, Happy New Year. Happy Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All the rest. Joyous Kwanzaa, whatever else you celebrated. Hope it was all good. No, New Year's and Christmas. That was it. I hope everybody had a good one. It was uh, perfect. It snowed. You wake up to a beautiful uh, splattering of snow, and uh, it makes it all that much better for Santa and the kids. I think it was good. At your place, is, does the snow splatter, Don? It does in certain areas. We're going to start. I've never the heard. Like that. All right. Game I've never on. heard the word. I've never heard the verb splatter applied to that's snow. Because, but maybe it comes down in a thump where you live. All in that's five inches just come. Whoop! Oh, there we go. We're done. Splatter. I was going to say a smattering, but. That's the word <laughs> I will take it. Anyway, you know, there, I will say this: snow. There was snow, and I'll say that, Don, at the beginning of the show, I pointed out, and I, one of the things that was, you know, nobody wants COVID, nobody wants, and I don't mean the this the virus, I mean, nobody wants COVID to be around and all the inconveniences, but there was something, sort of a forced relaxation with COVID. You couldn't go anywhere if you were following the rules. You could only stay in. And I'll tell you what, uh, having a snowfall on Christmas Eve and into Christmas Day when you're not going to be able to travel, it was beautiful because now you're not worried about driving in it and anything else. It was just, you know what? It just looks lovely out. That's just enjoy it. Right. And the fact that there's no tire tracks anywhere and 
it's uh, it, you know what we do need is a bit of cold weather so we can get some uh, kids out on the ponds and kids out on backyard rinks and let's not take everything away from them. We need a little help there. Is that allowed? Wasn't it in Cal? Was it in Calgary? Where was it in Canada somewhere that the police with tasers shut down an outdoor rink on someone's private property? So I, I don't even know if it's allowed, but hopefully, hopefully. How, how much harm could be done if you're outside in the freezing cold? Well, you can have gatherings at 10, right? So, you know, you can put a bunch of kids on the ice and everybody stay 12 and a half miles away from each other and let them go out and play a little bit of shinny. Yeah, I, it's a, it's a very very large rink. We got to be, we got we to gotta be careful. So don't listen yeah, to those, me. No, those those breakaways become very long when you have to stay that distance apart. <laughs> yeah, it's the Rideau Canal <laughs> breakaway. Yeah, don't don't listen to me. Listen to the government officials. That's okay. No, as I say, it's it's the Rideau Canal breakaway where one net is down by the Parliament buildings and the other is in Petawawa, and you just yeah, just I, skate until you see the other guy. I might be in trouble getting to that one now. Well, <laughs> I, have you? You know, we we were talking. And we've been hearing about the, some people have called it the COVID-19, some have called it the COVID-15. I, I, I don't do New Year's resolutions because invariably I break them within hours. Um, but uh, Don, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know. I haven't put on weight, but oh man, do I feel out of shape after all this time. And so beginning tonight, it's, uh, it's onto the elliptical and uh, trying to do something. Have you, have you had any exercise since this thing started? Um. No, but the good news for me is that's very consistent for me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we bought a we, we bought a new bike a week before Christmas, and uh, we our treadmill was fixed. Uh, the lovely Suze is down there wearing it out, and I am going down tomorrow morning to get on this bike, and it's a spin bike. We can use it as another bike, and I'm going to start spending half an hour a day on it. Oh, good. And I am going to see if I can get in better shape because you get, my problem is you get older, the, 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 the cold weather is hard on, you know, bending and twisting. So I'm going to go down and slowly try and fix that. We'll see how it goes. I won't quit it. I mean, I'll stay at it. There is, I, one thing about it, when I decide I'm going to do something, I will, I will get at it. But it's, uh, it, I, I'm pretty sure the first week is not going to be a lot of fun. No, I agree. Tomorrow morning is the first day. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and I, the first week is awful. Um, I, I Don, up until March the 13th or whenever, whatever day it was that everything shut down, uh, I had been shocking to myself, uh, so consistent going to the gym every night. I'd finish the show and I would go to the gym and I'd do an hour in the gym and since things got shut down, I probably, if you had me on the odometer or the pedometer or whatever it is, I probably haven't taken more than 300 steps in any given day. I walk from the bedroom to the basement, to the TV room, to the bedroom and to bed. And I suddenly realized, you know what? This is, um, this is not good. <laughs> this is, you might want this to is in a bathroom stop. Well, okay. Okay. That's an extra three steps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, um, uh. I think there's a lot of people who are probably finding it now. All of a sudden, they're going, "Man, it's been like months, and I've done nothing." No, I know, and and uh, it's and there's no reason because everybody's got time now. Everybody doesn't have the equipment, but if you watch enough things, you know, on various TV shows or um, even if you're on the internet a little bit, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to work out at home without a whole lot of equipment. You just have to be driven which I'm not, and you have to be committed to find those ways. I mean, soup cans work as bell, you know, as, as uh, dumbbells, bell lifts, right? Dumbbells. Yeah. I mean, they're not 60 pounds, but they're not weight free, right? I mean, at least you can do something. If you're going to use the excuse that it's not heavy enough, then you got rocks in your own head because it's better than nothing. Anything to not do something is an excuse. And let me tell you, I've mastered a few of those excuses in my day. Yeah, no, I, I, when we built our house, uh, one of the things I discovered that I made a big mistake about 
was I should have gone one foot deeper into the basement so that I had headspace. Because if I were to do jumping jacks down here, I'm going to have a concussion on the first one Um, or anything else that involves burpees or, you know, so, you know, look, again, I'm, I'm a master at finding all the excuses in the world not to do it. You know, my show is done. It's like, okay, time to watch TV and eat. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see not, by tom- you you, de- you de- do need a higher ceiling because it's not like you're five two either, right? You're not. So that's one that's one thing that uh, that our our home has. It's it's nine foot ceilings in the basement, and boy, you know it's it's a bit more dull when you're doing it. But having sold assuredly a million houses by now, I've been in so many of them, right? That you just you just look at it and go for the price, you got to go the extra foot. So anybody's in a little building. One extra foot. I'll tell you one story and then we'll get on to something important. Um, years and years ago in high school, I was dating this girl and uh, they lived in a very old home and her mom asked me to retrieve something from the basement. So I went bounding down the stairs and wasn't really watching where I was going as I took two steps at a time and didn't see the six inch copper pipe right at the foot of the stairs running parallel, running across. And I hit my forehead on that thing at full speed. <laughs> And it just, and I all, I saw stars. Like I thought I almost locked myself out. Well, her dad was up in the bathroom using the facilities upstairs and came down and said, what happened? I'm on the toilet. And I hear this <laughs> come through the toilet. Like, and then he sees me with this six inch red mark across my forehead. It's like, oh, I, okay. You, you did that too. Huh? I've done it before. Uh, yeah. What an Tall ba- high basements are good things. What an interesting way to check out how smart your daughter's boyfriend <laughs> yeah. Sit on the toilet and see if you hear funny noises coming from down below. You, un- different <laughs> funny noises. <laughs> you better come up uh, with something in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, Don, let me, let me, um, the World Juniors is on right now as we get to sports, which four is nothing. kind of what we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, yeah, 4 oh, nothing for Canada right now over Russia midway through the second period. I, is it me or in the last number of years, 10, 12 years ago, the world juniors was the event when they had a, a an exhibition game. Uh, um, John Tavares was playing in it at first at cops Coliseum back then it was sold out. Uh, and that was for an exhibition game. Um, like it was the biggest thing on the Canadian sports calendar. Uh, is it me or has it, it's still a thing people still tune in, but has it lost a bit of its luster? Interesting year to ask the question, Scott, because nothing else is on if you're a hockey fan, right? There's been zero hockey, no OHL, nothing, no NHL. And I think it's a bit bigger deal this year. I also think it's a bigger deal when we're on one of those rolls where we're in the finals all the time and not missing, you know, in the quarterfinals and everything else. But I... It may have lost some of its luster, but boy, it's still a pretty good event. It is. Although for the first time ever the other day, I, and and honestly, like first time ever, I found myself watching U.S. college football while the Canada game was on. And I, I, and that, like that never happens. And I'm not even a U.S. college football fan. And I, there's just some, somehow it seems as though something is not as, I don't know what the right word is zippy about it or something. There's not, there's just not to me anyway, it seems there's not the, it's not bad. Like as you're saying, it's, it's still a good event and they're still going to get good TV numbers and everything. But if you were to have a pre-tournament game in Hamilton, forget COVID, let's say COVID wasn't happening and you had a pre-tournament game, no way you sell out again right now for a pre-tournament game. No chance. No, I, I agree with that analogy. And before I ask you to rescind your Canadian citizenship by watching college football and not the, uh, the Canadian juniors, what was the score? I mean, they've had some blowouts. And I think therein lies part of the problem that you're identifying is that there, there shouldn't be a tournament around where teams can win by double digits. Now, I know the Germans got hammered because they had some guys sitting out because of COVID. But there is such a disparity, and I could buy into the theory that they have too many teams. And when you have less teams, all of a more balanced situation, you're going to create a lot more interest. But when you've got some teams that are, 
you know, the only way that they sell out the game, the World Junior Games in Edmonton or wherever they do it, is they sell them with packages because then you have to watch Slovakia and Switzerland and Germany and Switzerland. Otherwise, you know, they're, the crowds go to those games are going to rival that of the real McCoys and the Hamlin Steelhawks because, you know, there's, you, you just haven't created the demand. And the only way they do it is to cluster and, and uh, SRO standing room only uh, type of marketing for it. And so I think what they've got to do is they've got to get, they have to have a system like uh, U.S. or sorry, European soccer where, you know, the top team in that division goes up and the bottom team gets relegated back down again. I think they still do that in the World Hockey Championships, right? But you can't have this many teams. I think that's, that's a mistake. Well, look, what was the knock against international women's hockey for years and still is to some degree, but not as much? It was when Canada or the U.S. played whomever, they destroyed them. Canada would play China and win 22 to nothing. And it was it was a joke or other teams. What's been the knock against, often against Canadian university football is the top 10 teams play everyone else and just absolutely destroy them. And so why do we even want to put this on TV? Who wants to see Western play Acadia and win 82 to three? No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, so I don't know what the fix is. The The problem here is that the World Junior Tournament seems to be going backwards. While women's hockey is getting closer, the World Junior Tournament seems to be getting further apart in a lot of these games. And you're right. I mean, the COVID definitely had an impact on that Germany game. And there are years when those other teams are much more competitive. But boy, it seems that there is still a, or even not still, there is a growing gap between some of those really good teams and some of the not so good teams. Well, you know, and, and here, here's one of the problems with junior hockey in itself. Like this year, we've got uh, a star laden team, right? I mean, the team is full of first round draft picks. 19. There, when you look at, you know, it's not bad. When, when you look at, Germany and uh, some of the other teams like uh, Switzerland and so on, you might say, boy, they're brutal. They shouldn't be in it. And I'm not a student and I don't study it at all. I have no interest in doing it. But the actual fact is that Germany may have, I mean, Germany may have 17, 17-year-olds 17 who can play in the tournament for the next two years. And they decided to bite the bullet to give these kids the experience so that they can be really competitive, you know, in their own mind in two years. And Canada is blessed because we have so many, but the lower place teams have to cycle through and have to really bite the bullet sometimes. So, and I don't know enough about Germany, that's a guess, or Switzerland, but if they've got a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds, that they're just trying to get the experience, they're going to be skilled in two years. But, you know, you don't want that. You want teams like Russia, uh, the U.S., Canada, that will be competitive every year. You don't want to watch a tournament and hope that Germany have one of their very best teams ever, and, you know, they come fifth. And next year, we know they're going to be 17th. And there aren't 17th. A number of years ago, Don, yeah, no, absolutely. A number of years ago, I proposed something for Canadian University football, and I think there's a comparison here. And what I suggested was that you should have – a, 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 what do you call it? An elite division, let's say, of the top seven teams in all the country based on your rankings from the year before or preseason predictions or whatever. So the Westerns, the Lavals and the Montreals and the Max and the, you know, whatever, Calgary go in and they play the Super League. But there's only seven, so there's one spot that remains open. And all the other teams that play in the country have their own playoffs and the team that emerges from that gets to join as the eighth team. So every team in the country theoretically can still play for the Vanier Cup, but week after week, you don't have this kind of massacre situation. I don't know if you can do that with the World Juniors, where you say, you know what, we know that there are four or five great teams, and the rest are not so good. So we're going to have the five teams play, and they're all going to make the playoffs. And then the other division is going to produce one team that gets into the playoffs or something. I don't know if it's doable. 
Uh, I don't know if we need to worry about it, but boy, it, as I say, it goes back to the idea. I just, it, 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 it just has not seemed to, maybe it's just COVID. I don't know. It just hasn't seemed to carry the same whatever this year that it has in the past to me. Anyway, it, I, I, my interest level has been down considerably for it. And I don't really know why, except maybe you're right. Maybe it's just the blowout quotient. Well, I mean, one of the challenges with that is if you were to say to do that, so we're going to take these, um, we're going to take the B pool and we can even take one winner out of them and put them into the playoff or the metal relegation. Where do you play those games in red deer? And who's going to watch them, right? If you don't, if you don't force people to buy tickets to go to Red Deer, who's going to go watch those games? Do you remember the World Juniors in Buffalo in two thousand eleven? Maybe it was the one where Canada had the big fold in the third period of the gold medal game. That when they played that tournament in Buffalo, what they did was the teams that were the forgive, you know, if you're one of those people from one of those countries, but those nothing teams, the teams that, you know, were going to, were the fodder, um, they played at the Pepsi Center, which is the Buffalo Sabres practice rink. It's in Amherst. It's out in the boonies. There's, or, or at Niagara University, where there might be five or six or 800 seats. And you know what, then that's fine. We can fill an 800 seat arena for one of these games between Germany and Austria or Switzerland and Slovakia, whatever we can do that, but we're not even going to try to put it in the 18,000 seat arena. Then you know what? It worked. It worked. And then you don't have to worry about that. Now, I don't know if the teams were, I don't know if those teams were thrilled about it being relegated to playing in the boonies, but you know, not really their call. If it's going to cost a ton of money and we can't, we're going to have a thousand people in an 18,000 seat arena. It looks stupid. Anyway. Yeah, it does. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Don Robertson back in. Of the, and I never, I never really introduced Don at the top of the show. I just said that he was the future 2021 Dundas Citizen of the Year, but he is also the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and of ComChoice Realty, and a guy who has been, um, he's been the Citizen of the Year in Dundas once before, and um, oh, he does a bunch of other things. If you live in Dundas and you don't know Don Robertson. You don't really live in Dundas. Let's put it that way. Um, everybody knows Don. Uh, well, you know, somebody might take issue with that, but I don't think so. They have no leg to stand on, Don. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs open training camp this week. And one of the shocks, Don, that a lot of people, their jaws hit the floor a little bit, I think, was when they introduced or put the lines on the ice for the first time. Uh, Matthews and Marner were together. That was not a surprise, but rather than having... Zach Hyman with them, as has been the case for most of the last few years, or at least with him. Uh, Joe Thornton, 942 years old, Joe Thornton is playing on a line with the top two Leafs players. Does that surprise you? I think they do things like that for a bit of shock value. I I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit of a surprise. They maybe, you know, they, it's day one, so they've got some time to monkey around. Uh, Joe Thornton is uh, traditionally a center, I believe, and uh, but you're right at his age, it's slightly over a thousand years. Maybe moving him <laughs> to the wing with less skating and less responsibility might not be a bad move. But I think they do stuff like that opening day just to have these conversations. But I'm not sure. Well, the other thing about Thornton that um, many years ago in your league, in the senior league. Uh, there was a guy who played, I, I think one year, maybe two, but he played one year. I wrote about him when he was there. I can't remember which team he played for. A uh, Rick Zezel, former Maple Leaf, Peter Zezel, pardon me, Peter Zezel, former Maple Leaf. I can't remember who he played for, but he came into your Cameron building Horn. one time. Okay. And at the time I had not realized that he was not well. And when I showed up to watch him and write a story about him, he was, he was big. Like he had put on a lot of weight. Now it turns out that was because of medications that he was taking. Um, for a condition, I mean, he's passed on now. He, he was not well at that point, but the point I'm making is it, much like Joe Thornton, as far as we know, Joe Thornton is perfectly healthy, but as you get older, your legs may go, but if you're an elite passer, an elite puck handler, your hands don't necessarily go last. And one thing Joe Thornton does as well as anyone in hockey is pass the puck. 
And if you have yeah. now one of the all-time great, well, not all-time, one of the great current snipers in Austin Matthews, and now you've got Marner and Thornton setting him up, that could be a pretty impressive thing if they stick with it. It could be. If, and and the, things that, the thing that will help a guy like Joel Thornton, and in the way, well, all, all coaches coach now in the National Hockey League, your shifts are not the old Phil Esposito two minutes and <laughs> eighty six second shifts, right? Like they're they're pretty bang bang shifts. I, I, I did that math on purpose, by the way. Um, they're pretty bang bang shifts, so he might be able to sustain it. We'll have to see. I don't know what his conditioning is like. Well, he I mean, certainly has the skill set. You could also take him. You could also sit him every once in a while and put Wayne Simmons up there for a shift or put Hyman up there for a shift and then go back. I mean, there's no reason you have to play him every single time that group goes out. Well, what will happen is, is, is and when you do something like that with a, an elder statesman like Thornton, um, he won't be under power play and he won't be killing penalties. And, you know, there's going to be a fair amount of power play time that goes along with when you see the ice time of the elite players, you know, Austin Matthews, and it's always been argued, does he get enough? I think Keith gives them enough ice time. Babcock arguably did not. Um, you know, that includes some uh, penalty kill and power play. So even if Thornton plays on a top line, it's probably only going to equate into maybe 13 minutes a game. That should be doable for him. Yeah, I think he's going to be on the power play, though. I think that's one of the reasons they got him is because of his power play, his passing, and his ability on the power play. But it, you know what? It's going to be, it's going to be interesting because he is. I mean, you know, I joke around. He he is an old guy by current hockey standards. I mean, he's a by current hockey standards, Don. He is a really old guy. Um, uh, and yeah. you know, and and he was never that fleet of foot to begin with. And you've got a team that is that wants to play fast. Now, the flip side is. The Leafs want to be a puck possession team, and he is great at possessing the puck and holding onto the puck, and as I say, great at passing. So, it, you know what? It's um, I don't know that when they signed a guy like him to a minimum wage contract, minimum salary contract, anybody thought he was going to be more than a fourth-line player. And when he shows up and he's on the top line of the team that some are predicting is going to be the top team in the Canadian division, that, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Well, it is, and like I say, it's day one. Let's see. I mean, they they needed some depth up front, and they now have it. I mean, they've got Simmons, they've got Thornton, um, none, none of which are kids, but they found out, the, first of all, Simmons is going to bring some sandpaper. Nobody's going to run over top of Joe Thornton, and they needed to get a little more gritty in the playoffs because they were, like we talked about when they got beat out, they were too easy to play against. So they won't be as easy to play against and they've got a more veteran presence. And if Joe Thornton is the pro I'm told he is, and he's, and like Traveris goes out and outworks everybody else on the team, it makes the other guys have to pick it up a notch. I'll say one other thing that I thought was an act of genius that was missed by a lot of the writers for Toronto. I was sort of surprised by this. A number of them said, oh man, but what's going to happen? when he has Connor McDavid bearing down on him. It's going to be ugly. Connor McDavid, when they play, because they're going to play the Oilers a lot this year and the other teams, the other teams are not going to put out their highest offensive players against the Leafs' top line. I, this is a stroke of genius in one sense because putting Joe Thornton on the second or third line, he might have to play against McDavid a lot. They're not going to, they're going to match up with a more defensive line against Austin Matthews. So you're actually hiding Joe Thornton from some of those super, super, super fast, super top players by putting him there. Well, a guy like Thornton, the only way he's going to stop McDavid is chopping down. He's used to playing against McDavid, right? Because they were in the same division, I think. Yeah, San Jose. Yeah. So he's, he's seen his share of, I'm not sure he likes chasing him around the rink. Well, he wouldn't be able to chase him. How many times he's going to catch him? Oh, he'd, be, he'd chase him. Yeah, he'd chase him. He wouldn't catch him, but he'd chase him. He'd chase oh, him. Yeah, well, listen, I, I I think it's I think it's there is something there. Uh, the, the to me, the question is not about his defensive ability and stopping other players. It's can he keep up with Marner and Matthews? But you know what? If he can, um, 
could be a real, I mean, it could be a stroke of genius. It could be a disaster too, but I, I was, I was fascinated when I saw it. I was a very surprised, but I was fascinated when I saw it and I thought, you know what? It very clever. Let's see if this thing works. And if it does, you have wow. stumbled. It's an act of genius. If it works, if not, well, you can fix it theoretically, unless you're wow. Mike Babcock and then you'll stick with it all year. Well, let, let's, let's see what happens next Monday night and see, see how long that lasts. And if it lasts forever and it's working for them, then obviously they want to give it a try. I mean, they like, they like creating conversations like this after day one of training camp. I mean, that's kind of the leaf way, but you know, I mean, if it works, they may go, eh, why don't we leave this for a bit? You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, you're a general manager of a hockey team. You have been for a lot of years. Um, Blue Jays going into this off season, which was, it's a very, a very weird year, no question. But the, going into this offseason, they talked a very big game about making a big splash. Now it was time to bring in some players, to get some free agents signed, to go after the big name guys or, you know, the big fish. And so far, nothing. Absolutely nothing for the Blue Jays yet in that particular context. If they don't do anything by the time the season starts, by the time spring training gets going, I'm assuming most people are going to see it as a failure, which leads me to the question, if you're a general manager, are you better just to say nothing, shut up and just say, you know what, we're going to see where things go, or are you better to try and sell big and promise big and hope that you can deliver it? Well, you got to deliver. I mean, you can't say, you have to have a plan that you know is realistic. Like, It's every general manager says, you know, we've learned a lot this year. Uh, We know where our weaknesses are. We know if we add this type of player, it'll really inspire, make us better, and make the other players around us better so we know exactly what we need. They generally can't mention names. But, boy, when when you start making comments like that, that here are the type of things we'd like to do, without having something semi in place or you're very comfortable you can do one or two things, but when you come out and say that and do nothing, boy, I mean, it might be a good thing that they can't have any fans at the start of the year because you can't make empty promises in the Toronto sports scene like that without doing something. Now, there's a lot of baseball fans, including me, that think that you know they've got a lot of talent. They're on the right track. And yes, is it time? It's either time this year or next year. But you and I didn't make the comments. They made the comments that we're ready. <clears throat> now, in, in their defense, which is not my job, um, it's an interesting offseason. A lot of guys can't get the dough they want. So there are some people that are unsigned. But it was the Blue Jays under the present circumstances that said that they were going to be aggressive and do something and have done nothing. How oh yeah, that bode well for your integrity. Uh, it, look, there, there are guys who are available. All it costs you is money. The problem is it costs you an awful lot of money, like a lot, lot of money. Yeah. But when you have said that we're going to get some of these guys, uh, I, uh, to me, if I was Shapiro or Atkins, and I'm not, um, I don't know that you go into this trying to tell people that big, big things are going to happen. Because now, you know, uh, believe it or not, and we know this was the case once upon a time, then it kind of went away. There is a Toronto premium that you're going to have to pay some guys to come to a different country and play in a different country. And I don't get the sense that, well, maybe they will. Maybe I'm going to be proven wrong. I don't get the sense they want to pay that premium. They don't want to pay the extra to these guys and go way, way, way in with both feet like San Diego Padres seem to have done this offseason. And if you're not going to, you're not going to get these guys. Well, and you know what? And it's not like they got here last week. They've been here a few years now. They know the challenges. They know the guys that have said no, you know, crossing the border, you know, three times a month is, you know, that's going to cost you $20 million a year. I mean, that's a ridiculous number. But you know what I mean? Like, there's a premium. How much is it? You play indoors. Toronto's a beautiful city. But they know the challenges, and they still made the statements. I mean, if, in fact, they made those statements, hoping that Rogers would read it and say, hey, that's a great idea, 
why don't they give why don't we give them another eighty million dollars a year? Presumably they talked to Rogers before making, you know, comments like that. And there's one or two things that happened. Either they can't get the job done or Rogers have decided because it looks like, you know, they may be playing in Buffalo again this year, which cannot be a big moneymaker for them. Ha ha. Um, that they've put the brakes on it and said, you know what? You know that $75 million we were going to give you? Well, we're going to give you eight instead. And one thing that the GM and the president can't do is come out and dump on the owners and say, you're not going to believe this. Right. They said we had $75 million, Now we got eight. Can you believe it? Who works under these conditions? They could do that. You know, you and I will be the GM and president if they do. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know the deal. I don't know the yeah. deal. But I, Rogers don't want to get embarrassed. I, I always, we got to go, I always believe in under-promising and over-delivering rather than the opposite. And, uh, too. you know, that, but that seems to be the way you, you keep the fan base happy. And as I say, we got to go. But I remember the year, either, I, I guess it was 93, they'd won the World Series. And all of a sudden, you get, Dave Winfield is gone. But suddenly, oh, surprise, we got Paul Molitor. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then David Cohn is gone. And well, surprise, we got Dave Stewart. Well, that's pretty good. And every time you look like you were going to be losing something out of the blue, unexpectedly, someone great showed up and you went, oh, okay. All right. I was under expecting that. I wasn't expecting that, but you over delivered. Anyway, we'll see. Uh, Don, we got to run. Don Robertson, always appreciate it. Happy New Year. Appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll be doing this something like 51 more times this year. So thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Scott. Have a good have a good New Year. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.